Good morning. Please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 11. I never know uh, when I get up here if I should introduce myself or what. Um, You know, if you're a guest preacher, you get an introduction. If you are a preacher from the congregation, you have to introduce yourself. So, uh, my name is Andy. I go to Grace Church. I preach sometimes. There you go. Thank you. Um, So, Pastor Aaron has the week off. As you all know, he and Rochelle had twins two weeks ago. And uh, my wife, Rochelle, and I also had the brilliant idea of having twins. And uh, I remember when they were still newborns, we always wanted to ask people, especially other people who had twins, when does it get easier? (laughs) Don't ask that question, (laughs) Aaron. Don't ask me that question, because I don't like to lie, you know. It does get different. Isaiah chapter 11. Uh, AJ read it on the screen a minute ago, but I'd like to read, read it with you, verses 1 through 9. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Stumped. Israel has been reduced to a stump here. And we all get stumped from time to time. You know, where did I leave my keys? I'm stumped. Uh, I'm stumped. I can't finish this crossword puzzle. I just can't think of a five-letter word for God's unmerited favor. Anybody? Grace, okay. Okay. But we're dealing with a much more serious form of being stumped here. The nation of Israel has already been cut down from 12 tribes to just two, Judah and Benjamin. 
the southern kingdom of Judah. And in spite of all our advances in technology and culture since this time, the highest any nation can achieve in God's eyes is stump level. God has a word for all the nations on earth in today's passage. But maybe you've come in here this morning and you're feeling personally stumped. You work hard, maybe you've even achieved a lot, but you feel like there's a lot missing. And God has a word for you too this morning, if you're stumped. Well, the kingdom of Judah had much bigger problems than trying to solve a crossword puzzle. In this passage, they have been reduced to a stump, the stump of Jesse. So in Isaiah 11, there's this contrast between the stump and the shoot. And we're going to look at three different ways that the stump and the shoot differ. First of all, the stump is dead and dry, like a stump, right? But the shoot, the branch, is alive and it's spirit-filled. Second, the stump is characterized by wickedness and the branch by righteousness. And finally, the stump has brought God's judgment. It's been cut down. But the branch will bring God's peace. So let's look at those three contrasts this morning. First of all, we have the contrast between the stump being dead and dry and the spirit being, uh, uh, the branch being spirit-filled and alive. So just to set the context a little bit here, in the preceding chapters, especially chapter 10, we have the account of Assyria, the great world power at this time, and this is around 700 BC. Isaiah is foretelling when Assyria is going to invade the land of Judah. And as it turns out, you can read about it in chapter 10, especially verse 28 to 32. It's a travelogue of the Assyrian armies coming down from the north into Judah and landing right at the doorstep of Jerusalem, surrounding the city. And just when it seems like there's no hope, God will deliver his people miraculously and send the Assyrians home. In chapter 10, verse 33, God says this, Behold, the Lord of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down, and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. Lebanon here is a symbol for Assyria. That's where the biggest trees grew in Lebanon. So this giant tree, Assyria, God will lop it down. He will cut it down. It too will be a stump. Isaiah chapter 37, you don't have to turn there, but it records the narrative of what happens when the Assyrian army surrounds Jerusalem. Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, sent Hezekiah a letter. You remember this story? The Assyrians were surrounding Jerusalem and Sennacherib sends Hezekiah a letter and he takes the letter 
and he lays it out in the temple before the Lord. Remember that? He has no hope. He just says, God, what do we do? They were completely hopeless. That night, God sent his angel, and the angel struck down 185,000 in the Assyrian army. And the Assyrians packed up and went home. Sennacherib, king of Assyria, once he was back home, was killed at the hands of his own two sons. So the tribe of Judah would eventually be taken into captivity, but not for another hundred years or so by the Babylonians. And Isaiah foretells the end of the Babylonian Empire too. In Isaiah 13, 19, God says this about Babylon. He says, Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. It will never be inhabited or lived in for all generations. Wild animals will lie down there and their houses will be full of howling creatures. And you can see the ruins of ancient Babylon today. They're literally in the desert with nothing else surrounding them. Sennacherib, king of Assyria, had boasted to Hezekiah in his letter. He had said, Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. The boasting of the kings of Assyria and later Babylon reminds me of this poem, Ozymandias. Do you know this poem? Anybody? I like this poem. This is an old poem by Percy Bysshe Shelley. I think she wrote Frankenstein. Yeah. This is part of the poem. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone, like two stumps, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. And on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. So that's the background to chapter 11. God is talking in chapter 10 about cutting the Assyrian army down, the Assyrian empire down like a great tree. But then there's an immediate turn in chapter 11 about a different stump. And this time the stump is Judah. So God has just gone from saying that Judah would be saved from the Assyrians to talking about Judah as a stump. Isaiah is looking beyond the deliverance from Assyria to the time when Jerusalem and Judah would be taken into captivity by the Babylonians. So now for Judah, it seems there is no hope. They are a stump. They have no land. They have no temple. They have no king. So a stump is dry. It's got no life, at least from what you can observe on the surface. And so we have on the one hand two stumps, 
stump of Assyria, cut down by God, and also the stump of Judah, judged by God. And on, on the other hand, you've got a shoot. This shoot is growing out of something that for all intents and purposes appears dead. But God specializes in that kind of thing, doesn't he? I think about the beginnings of Israel when he spoke to a man named Abram and made him a promise, you will have a son. And Abram and his wife Sarai did have a son, but not till Abram was 100 years old. And as the book of Hebrews says, as good as dead. That was the beginning of the nation of Israel. And that's how God likes to work. So in contrast to Assyria, which turned out to be a stump, and even Judah, you've got the branch. God's living branch. You've got man's way on the one hand. The Tower of Babel. Let's build a tower that reaches to the heavens. Let's make a name for ourselves. You've got on the one hand Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome. Every nation in the world, even our own. Every empire and nation in the history of the world, all stumps from God's point of view. They're like stumps when compared to this tender green shoot springing up from the stump of Jesse. Because this shoot is God's chosen Messiah, Jesus Christ, and he will be anointed with God's spirit. And this is his kingdom. God's ways are not our ways. God says, it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. When this shoot, the Son of God, became a man, the Holy Spirit came to rest on him at his baptism in the form of a dove. And the Spirit empowered and directed Jesus in his earthly ministry. This is what Isaiah refers to as the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Jesus had wisdom and understanding. He knew God's will. He knew what to do. He had the spirit's counsel and might. He had communion with God. And he had the power to carry out God's will. And the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Jesus wasn't afraid of God. Jesus is the son of the Father. But Jesus exhibited in his life on earth perfect reverence for God, worship for God. This spirit is the same spirit in the Old Testament who came upon Samson. And he tore a lion apart with his bare hands. But look what Jesus does with this same power. In the book of Luke, Jesus is in the synagogue in Nazareth, his hometown, and he opens a scroll and he reads it and he says, this is about me. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, 
to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is what Jesus does with this incredible power. There's no doubt Jesus did live a spirit-filled life on earth and do amazing miracles, but the best part is that after his death and resurrection, Jesus poured out his spirit on believers. He shared, shared this power with us. Jesus said to his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. 1 Corinthians 2.12 says, Believers have received the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. You can't know God without having his Spirit live inside you. The difference between not having the Spirit and having the Spirit is like the difference between a stump and a living tree. Which are you? So first there's a contrast between a dead and dry stump and a living, Spirit-filled branch. Next, there's a contrast between the wickedness of the stump and the righteous judgment of the branch. In Isaiah 10, verse 1, which is a, a passage condemning Israel for its wickedness, God says, Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil and that they may make the fatherless their prey. Judah and Israel were wicked. But the branch of the Lord, God says, shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. You know, if Jesus judged by outward appearances, he would have loved the Pharisees because they looked great. If he judged by outward appearances, everybody who comes to church, everybody who lives in Bergen County, everybody who drives a nice car would get a passing grade. But Jesus didn't say, blessed are the rich or the well-connected or the busy. He said, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So for the poor, for the meek, for those who do not normally receive justice, Jesus is very concerned that they get it. And the way he judges those who are poor in spirit and needy, those who recognize their need for him, the way he judges them is with great gentleness. Isaiah 43 says this about the Messiah. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. If you're a bruised reed, if you're a faintly burning wick, if you just have the littlest bit of faith in Jesus, he won't snuff it out, but he will fan it into a flame. He is gentle and lowly in heart toward all those who seek him. 
But to the wicked, those who persist in unbelief, the shoot will not be so gentle. In verse 4, it says, He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Jesus is a king, after all, and a judge. The kingdom belongs to him, and all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to him. On the last day, all who don't acknowledge him as king will be subject to final judgment. So the stump is dry, the shoot has life. The stump is wicked, the shoot is righteous. And finally, the stump has fallen under God's judgment, but the shoot will bring God's peace. Assyria, Israel, and every nation that has existed has been affected by the curse of sin. All nations on earth, all people, are deserving of God's wrath. Israel was left a stump because of its wickedness, its idolatry, contempt for justice. But Isaiah 10 and 11 could almost be called a tale of two stumps. Right? There's a stump of Assyria, there's a stump of Judah. But why does a shoot spring forth from the stump of Judah? What's the difference between the two? The difference is God's promise. He promised to Abraham that all the world would be blessed through him. He promised to David that he would have a son who would sit on his throne forever. The difference is not Israel's righteousness, but God's promise. His promise that he would send a savior and God always keeps his promises. So God's righteous branch, instead of bringing judgment, is gonna bring peace to the world. And not just peace between people, peace over the whole earth, peace between man and man, man and woman, woman and woman, man and animals. The only way this can be done is by lifting of the curse of sin. Romans 8.20 says this, the creation was subjected to futility, frustration, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to sin, to corruption, and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. In other words, when Adam and Eve sinned, they didn't just affect personal relationships, it affected creation itself. Until that curse is lifted, we cannot have peace. God's got a much bigger plan in place than what we call peace. We call it peace when two nations agree not to fight each other. What God calls peace, what God calls peace is no more sin. No more pain, no more darkness, no more depression or fear, no death. No human devised government can bring that kind of peace about. So how did God's branch bring peace? In the book of Zechariah, chapter four, verse eight, God says something else about this, this branch. He says, behold, I will bring my servant, the branch, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. 
That day was the day Jesus, the branch, was crucified for our sins on the cross. The branch brought peace by taking God's wrath on himself. And he didn't just pay for the sins of all who believe in him, he lifted the curse upon all of creation. Colossians 1.20 says, Through Jesus Christ, God reconciled all things to himself. All things. Back in Isaiah chapter 11, the last verse of our passage, verse 9. God says, They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It's true knowledge of the Lord that leads to peace. This is true of the whole earth. When the knowledge of God fills the earth, there will be peace. And it's true of you personally. If you want peace, if you want joy in your life, you need to know Jesus personally. You need to know God through Jesus. There's a record of Jesus' family tree in the book of Matthew, the genealogy of Jesus, just before the account of his birth. And you know, Jesus' family tree was a mess, and it was full of broken people, people like you and people like me, sinners, liars, the worn out, the wicked, the wanderers, the lost. It's true that Jesus judged that tree, but in his judgment there was mercy. Uh, Anne Voskamp in her Advent book, The Greatest Gift, that my wife reads this book every year before Christmas. Anne Voskamp says this, Jesus claims exactly these who are wandering and wondering and worn out as his. He grafts you into his line and his story and his heart and he gives you his name, his lineage, his righteousness. The way to joy this Christmas is through Jesus, God's living branch. Only through him may we share in an eternal, spirit-filled, joy-filled life, free from judgment, at peace with God and man. Let's pray.